0: And thank you for listening to the History of World War II podcast, episode 250, A Date Which Will Live in Infamy. Last time, on December 2nd, 1941, Japanese Prime Minister Tojo gave the go-ahead for Operation Number 1, the invasion of several countries in Southeast Asia, to begin right after the Americans were humbled at Pearl Harbor. Yet, they couldn't expect the British-led Commonwealth forces to have no plans of defense in the targeted territories. The question was whose plan was superior, as in who would carry it out better, and who had the advantage in their men's fighting spirit. As for the Japanese, though many of their men had gained experience in China over the last few years, many of those had been inexperienced at the time, and had been shocked by the horrors of war. Those horrors had either made the war personal, as in, they had shrugged off their humanity and were now what every military needs, effective killing machines, or they had accepted the necessity of killing while holding on to their decency, but knew it would be better for Japan to be the winner in this contest. Although Tokyo expected complete obedience from their men, The more specific goals of Operation No. 1 were not lost on them. The lands and people under Japan's control in China would be joined by the oil, rubber, and rice of Southeast Asia. Once that was taken, and when put with the industrial ability of the home islands, Japan would have an industrial empire second to none. But Operation No. 1 besides dealing heavy blows to the Americans, British, and Dutch, hoped to end the stalemate with Chiang Kai-shek's part of China. Should Burma and its famous road to the northeast of Thailand come under Japanese control, the last lifelines from the west would be cut to the nationalist government, which should help end the Sino-Japanese War on terms acceptable to Tokyo. As for the fighting spirit of the men of Operation No. 1, the Japanese military was counting on the spiritual and racial superiority of their men, as they assumed they would not be attacking with superior numbers, given the many locations they were about to attack simultaneously. The Japanese 25th Army, led by Lieutenant General Yamashita Tomoyuki, whose ultimate goal was Singapore, was about to land with only three divisions on Siam, modern-day Thailand, and Malaya, some 26,000 men, of which only 17,000 were combat troops. Defending this territory, Lieutenant General Arthur Percival, General Officer Commanding, Malaya Command, had just over 88,000 men. 19,600 British, 15,200 Australians, 37,000 Indians, and some 16,800 local Asian soldiers. Of course, these would be spread out, as it was not known where the enemy would land. But more than having at least the equal number of men, a war in Southeast Asia would be very different than in the fields of France or the steppes of Russia. The tropical conditions, while fighting in the jungles, would require a different skill set, not to mention relying less on tanks, artillery, mortars, and armored fighting vehicles. As such, Percival's predecessor, Lieutenant General Lionel Bond, then the General Officer Commanding Malaya Command, had his staff work up a pamphlet regarding such warfare called Tactical Notes for Malaya of 1940, it stated that the infantry would be the main fighting unit of a future war in the jungle, as roads, much less paths, would be far and few in between in Malaya and Thailand, places that could lead to Singapore. It would be up to the soldiers and the weapons they could carry on their backs that would decide victory or defeat. Hence, officers were ordered to take their men into the jungle for ready acclamation. But that was only the beginning of this kind of training. As communications would be limited in the jungle, success came down to taking the fight to the enemy, as opposed to setting up a fierce defensive line and allowing the enemy to break themselves upon it and listening posts would be vital that would allow for coordinated attacks by relatively small groups that could harass the enemy, giving them no relief. But the tactical notes wasn't just for the fighting men. As roads and communications would be limited, bold leadership was essential. The men must be prepared, willing, and able to take to the jungle for months at a time, to whittle down a larger enemy force as it approached any British center, and their local commanders would have to lead the way. As these tactical notes, and others like it, were supposed to stop the Japanese from winning in a general land war, the tactics therein could also be thought of as a way to harass the enemy should they take control of large swaths of land until reinforced Allied naval and air power could be brought to bear. Yet, at the time, it was envisioned that tactics like this would prevent an enemy victory, on any level. But what must be questioned, however, given this belief, was Percival's current firepower in regards to armor and air power. Indeed, Percival, when the Japanese came, only had carriers and armored cars whereas the invaders would be bringing 265 medium and light tanks. In regards to air power, again, the Commonwealth troops were holding the short end of the stick, with 181 planes, while the Japanese had almost 600, of which more than 200 were first-class fighters. Moreover, even though the jungle tactical notes had been passed out in 1940, More local commanders than not ignored them, or did not see to it that their men were forced into the jungle for training. The same could be said to be true of across-the-board coordination between infantry, air power, and limited as it was, AFVs, or armored fighting vehicles. Now, Percival, with his experience from various posts, was aware of such shortcomings and worked hard to correct them. But as he had arrived in May of 1941, time was not on his side, so the Allied troops and their territory would pay the price. As such, the general officer commanding Malaya Command had his list of priorities. First, if and when the Japanese came, Singapore was of paramount importance. But with its two Malayan brigades, the first and second, its fixed coastal defenses, and its anti-air batteries, an opening direct attack there seemed unlikely. So, next came the area of Johor, just above Singapore. Percival envisioned that the Japanese, if they landed that close, would come to the east coast, about 75 miles north of Singapore, near the towns of Endau and Mersing. So there, the 8th Australian Division, along with the 12th Indian Brigade, was placed. And, as the various brigades had spent the majority of their time working on fixed defensive positions, rather than jungle training, their works were not inconsiderable. Hence, it seemed to Percival that if the Japanese came, their troops would land further to the north, in northern Malaya, or even further away, in Thailand, then fight their way down south. The great irony was that the jungle tactics of the tactical notes, had they been fully embraced, could have bled the Japanese on their journey south, maybe even to the point of them postponing their attack on Singapore. But it was not to be. Percival's other concern was the Japanese capturing or getting permission to use the airfields of Thailand. This would enable them to bomb the Commonwealth positions in northern Malaya while their infantry pushed south. It could only be hoped that the thick jungle would help thwart this. For should northern Malaya come under Japanese control, they would then be in range to bomb Singapore to make it unusable for the British fleet, the next best thing, to taking possession of it. Hence, the 3rd Indian Corps was placed as far north as possible, in Malaya, to be ready to react in such an eventuality. With all this being the case, Percival knew there was nothing he could do to protect Siam, or Thailand, or Burma, for that matter, should the Japanese choose to push in that direction. His immediate concern was Singapore which meant Malaya would be his battleground, and thus destroyed in the process. But worrying about that was beyond the scope of his command. The defense of Singapore was all. As we will soon see, the British plans for Southeast Asia, those rehearsed and those not, would pay dividends, but not in the immediate future, and certainly not for Singapore. Churchill's Gibraltar, of the East, which would be occupied by the Japanese for the remainder of the war. This podcast could not exist without the help of sponsors like Yahoo Finance. When it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. Now, you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses, Yahoo Finance. That's yahoofinance.com. As President Roosevelt prepared for his speech to Congress late on December 7th and then slept, Operation No. 1 began the attacks on Hong Kong, Guam, the Philippines, Wake, and Midway Islands, and each of these and others will be covered in detail. When FDR awoke on December 8th, Washington time, He was updated on the situations in Hong Kong, Wake, Midway, and the Philippines. None of it was good news. The last hit the hardest, as General Douglas MacArthur had been warned beforehand. As things stood, MacArthur had lost most of his fleet, more than half of his air power, and much of his supplies that would have been needed in the coming sustained defense. Moreover, the estimates of dead at Pearl Harbor were now up to 2,800, though the number would firm up in the coming weeks. The president decided to keep all of this to himself, as he did not want to embolden the Japanese or terrify further the American people. His speech, as written, would stand. Being dressed at 11 a.m., the President wore a black armband, not for the men and women at Pearl. Those demonstrations would come later. This was for his mother, Sarah, who had died on September 7th and had been a great influence on her son's life. The limousine that drove the President to the House chamber had once belonged to the crime boss, Al Capone. Its armor now protected the most powerful man in the country, who would go on to be a part of the most powerful association in the world, the Big Four, or the Allies of World War II. At 1229, the doorkeeper of the House of Representatives, Joe Sinnott, announced the President of the United States.
1: Mr. Vice President, Mr. Speaker members of the Senate, of the House of Representatives. Yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy, the United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. The United States was at peace with that nation, and at the solicitation of Japan, was still in conversation with its government and its emperor, looking toward the maintenance of peace in the Pacific. Indeed, one hour after (laughs) Japanese air squadrons had commenced bombing in the American island of Oahu, the Japanese ambassador to the United States and his colleague delivered to our Secretary of State a formal reply to a recent American message. And while this reply stated that it seemed useless to continue the existing diplomatic negotiations. It contained no threat or hint of war or of armed attack. It will be recorded that the distance of Hawaii from Japan makes it obvious that the attack was deliberately planned many days or even weeks ago. During the intervening time, the Japanese government has deliberately sought to deceive the United States by false statements and expressions of hope for continued peace. The attack yesterday on the Hawaiian Islands has caused severe damage to American naval and military forces. I regret to tell you that very many American lives have been lost. In addition, American ships have been reported torpedoed on the high seas between San Francisco and Honolulu. Yesterday, The Japanese government also launched an attack against Malaya. Last night, Japanese forces attacked Hong Kong. Last night, Japanese forces attacked Guam. Last night, Japanese forces attacked the Philippine Islands. Last night, the Japanese attacked Wake Island. And this morning, the Japanese attacked Midway Island. Japan has therefore undertaken a surprise offensive extending throughout the Pacific area. The facts of yesterday and today speak for themselves. The people of the United States have already form their opinions, and well understand the implications to the very life and safety of our nation. As Commander-in-Chief of the Army and Navy, I have directed that all measures be taken for our defense, but always will our whole nation remember the character of the onslaught against us. No matter how long it may take us to overcome this premeditated invasion, the American people in their righteous might will win through to absolute victory. I believe that I interpret the will of the Congress and of the people when I assert that we will not only defend ourselves to the uttermost, but will make it very certain that this form of treachery shall never again endanger us. hostilities exist. There is no blinking at the fact that our people, our territory, and our interests are in grave danger. With confidence in our armed forces, with the unbounding determination of our people, we will gain the inevitable triumph So help us God. I ask that the Congress declare that since the unprovoked and dastardly attack by Japan on Sunday, December 7th, 1941, a state of war has existed between the United States and the Japanese Empire. Ladies and gentlemen, this short period of time, this floor is wild. The short period of time the presidential address is completely over, a total of not more than 500 words at the most. Mr. Roosevelt is, is leaving the roster now on the arm of. A...
0: As FDR had been the president since 1933, he and his New Deal policies had battled the opposing Republican Party and some conservative Democrats for years. As such, two of those attending would not stand as the president entered. Jeanette Rankin, and Claire Hoffman. Rankin would go on to give the only negative vote as FDR called for war against Japan. And yet, the argument that America had been having with itself for the last 20 years, whether it should get involved in Europe's or Asia's concerns, was now over. The war had been brought to America's doorstep, and the country, now mostly bound together, would answer the call. The first casualties of America's war on Japan were four cherry trees near the Potomac River, a gift from the mayor of Tokyo back in 1912, the night before some vengeful souls had chopped them down. Greetings, everyone, from Central Virginia. So, um, I just wanted to take a moment. As you may or may not remember, near the end of last year, I did a whole slew of interviews. And lately I've been trying to focus on the main story, because, you know, that's why we're all here. But that's not to say that the books have stopped coming in from all the publishers. So um, there's a lot of these I won't be able to interview just because it's a sheer numbers game. So I thought I would just read out uh, some of the titles for you. So if you wanted to pick up these books, check them out, you certainly could. So in no particular order, and I will be having... One interview that I promised a couple of months ago. That'd be that, that'd be out later this week. <clears throat> okay, so let's see here. One book is Pan Am at War, How the Airline Secretly Helped America Fight World War Two, Mark Cotta, Vans, and John H. Hill. Um, that's not World War Two. Engineering Hitler's Downfall by Gillum Roberts, The Brains That Enabled Victory. Cool. yeah. Wait to read that. Um, Against All Odds by Mitchell M. Topol. Um, the Ray Fermani story. I've heard of that, but I don't know the details. Looking forward to reading that. Hitler's Last Plot. The 139 VIP Hostages Selected for Death in the Final Days of World War II by Ian Sayer and Jeremy Dronfeld. Field. Um, <laughs> this one got into the pile by accident. But I love this guy. Barry Strauss, his Ten Caesars. Uh, book, Roman Emperors from Augustus to Constantine Um, Cam and I will probably be talking to him let's see here, uh, coming out in April, The Storm on Our Shores by Mark Omasik O-B-M-A-S-C-I-K let's see here One Island, Two Soldiers and the Forgotten Battle of World War II that should be good Uh, In July, The Liberation of Paris How Eisenhower, De Gaulle and Von Kollitz Save the City of Light Jean Edward Smith. Um, This one's coming out in June. The Year Germany Lost the War by Andrew Nagorski. I've got several books by him, so I'll be looking forward to reading that. Um, And the, the book that I'm doing the interview on later this week. Brothers Down, Pearl Harbor, and the Fate of Many Brothers Aboard the USS Arizona. Oh my goodness, there were like 63 brothers aboard the Arizona. Absolutely crazy, but I'm looking forward to talking to Walter Bornman about that. Uh, another one, Soldier, Sailor, Frogman, Spy, Airman, Gangster, Die, Kill or Die. Giles Milton, Churchill's Ministry of Ungentlemanly Warfare. Oh, that's he also wrote that as well. Sorry. Uh, that's a long title. Giles Milton. All right. <clears throat> Let's see here. Another one I'm looking forward to. The Darkest Year. The American Home Front, 1941 to 1942. William K. Klingman Klingerman. Alright, yeah, they're still coming. Uh, nope, that's another copy. But sometimes they send me two or three copies. Code name Codename Lisa. Lise Lise, the true story of the woman who became Came World War II's most highly decorated spy, by Larry Loftis. Looking forward to reading that. Always looking for heroes for my daughters, someone to look up to about bravery and courage. Oh, that's another duplicate. Waffen SS: Hitler's Army at War by Adrian Gilbert. That should be pretty cool. Oh, another copy. Another copy. Oh my God! I think that might be it for now. So this stuff is coming in on a weekly basis, but like I said, I want to kind of skip interviews from now and just kind of focus on the main story, especially when we're getting into the nuts and bolts of the Pacific Theater. Looking forward to that, but in case you want to know some of the latest books coming out, there's some of them right there. Um, take care, everyone, and I'll see you in a couple days with uh, with my interview with Walter Borman. Thank you very much. Take care, everyone.